Welcome to Diving Deeper, where we interview National Ocean Service scientists on the ocean topics and information that are important to you. I'm your host, Kate Nielsen. Today's question is, how do we respond to oil spills? Oil spills can happen in our rivers, bays, and the ocean. Spills are often caused by accidents involving tankers, barges, pipelines, and even refineries. These accidents usually occur when the oil is being transported to us. To help us dive a little deeper into this question, we will talk by phone with Amy Merton on oil spills. Amy is the NOAA co-director of the Coastal Response Research Center with NOAA's Office of Response and Restoration. Hi, Amy. Welcome to our show. Hey, Kate. Thanks a lot for inviting me here today to talk to you and your listeners. I'm really excited to talk to you about oil spills and how NOAA responds to these events. Amy, before we get into how we actually respond to oil spills, it would be great to talk about why oil spills happen in the first place. Well, they happen mainly because we are so dependent on oil in the U.S. We use about 700 million gallons of oil every single day. And how do we use oil? We're heating our homes. We're fueling our cars. We use oil to make plastics for, you name it, toys, radios, computers, even medicines. Oil is a fundamental part of our economy and our way of life. If we continue to need oil, we're going to continue to have spill risks. We have oil moving around the country in high volumes in ships and barges and pipelines and trucks. So that oil is getting to us minute by minute. The ships have the potential to cause these larger spills that we think about and we see on the TV, on TV. But really the biggest source of oil to our waterways is from non-point source, kind of the, the small spills and parking lots from you and me and everyone else is actually contributing to more oil pollution in the water than a, a big ship would. Thanks, Amy. I didn't know that the amount of oil that runs off of land from our daily activities is actually a bigger source of oil in our waterways than the oil that we typically think of after ship collisions with some of these larger oil spills. What does oil do once it is released into the environment? Well, most of the time, oil is going to be less dense than water, so it's going to float on top of the water. Oil, once it hits the water, and again, because it's it's lighter, it's going to spread out on top of the water. And if you did this in a laboratory, it would spread out uniformly. But since we have wind and currents in the environment, it's going to spread out in a patchy way. As it continues to spread out, it's going to get thinner and thinner and thinner. And so when you look at it, it'll look like almost a, a rainbowy sheen. And so you might be familiar with seeing these things after a heavy rainstorm in a, on a parking lot or on the roads. It looks like that on the water, too, when you're looking at it from a helicopter, for example. Amy, that's interesting that the same sheens that we see in our parking lots from oil is how oil on the water looks if you're up in the air in a helicopter looking down. How does oil impact plants and animals? Well, oil spills can be really harmful to plants and animals, particularly birds, not necessarily just marine birds, but if we have a spill inland, birds are, and mammals are very vulnerable, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Fish and shellfish may not be exposed right away, but uh, again, it might be exposed if that oil becomes entrained in the water column or somehow interacts at depth versus just staying on that surface. That'll happen from a wind situation or a stormy situation, or depending on what the oil type is, it might be light enough that it'll disperse into the water column. I'm sure your listeners have seen dramatic photos of oil birds and oiled otters and, and things of that nature. And what happens is the oil, it's 
not really a chemical response that happens. Is that the oil gets on the feathers and the fur, and it makes it so the the animal can no longer insulate itself from the the cold and the water. So it loses all of its ability to repel water. So it basically ends up dying from hypothermia. If it you know it will try to get the oil off its feathers or its fur, and it'll start preening, and so then it'll start ingesting oil, and then there is a toxic component to it. And basically, they end up dying from dehydration. So feathers and fur do not do well with oil. Thanks, Amy. I think so many of us have seen these horrible images on the news following a spill of birds and wildlife covered in oil. But we don't often think about what happens. We just feel so bad when we see these poor little guys covered in oil like that. Yeah, it's really dramatic. And, you know, one thing I do want to mention is part of our response community, we actually have specialists that are trained to deal with oiled wildlife. So only professionals go out and and capture oiled birds and oiled seals and and otters. And they they know exactly how they're going to clean them, where they're going to take them to to try to clean them up. And sometimes they are able to totally rehabilitate them and, and put them back out in the environment. I just wanted to make the point that they, you know, we have those the veterinarians and trained volunteers and specialists that work with us side by side. It's wonderful that there's a team out there just to handle the impacts of oil to wildlife and to really be able to respond and clean them up and maybe even return them then back in the wild and, and just save them. Amy, what is the biggest oil spill in U.S. history? Kate, the biggest oil spill in U.S. history is the Exxon Valdez that occurred 21 years ago, just last week. So if you remember this spill, it happened in Prince William Sound, Alaska, when an oil tanker ran aground and lost almost 11 million gallons of crude oil. While this sounds like a lot, it is only a small fraction, less than 2% of the total amount of oil that we use in one day. So pretty, pretty amazing. Just to try to give you guys an idea of how what 11 million gallons would look like, Try to think about 11 million gallons would fill up nine school gyms or approximately 430 classrooms. So again, we're talking about a large volume that's really hard to imagine and, and imagine in the environment. After the hurricanes of 2005, Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, and I think probably everyone's familiar with those, Louisiana experienced over 8 million gallons of oil. So you know, fairly large amounts of oil were lost to the coastal marsh environment. But I would like to make the point that smaller spills also have impacts, too. So if you have a small spill next to an area with where birds are nesting or migrating to, you can have a really large impact. Or you can have a spill, a smaller spill, on a really nice day in a city environment and have large impacts to how tourists are seeing that, that place impacting people's ability to get to the water. So um, large spills have dramatic impacts, but small spills also can have some dramatic effects as well. Thanks, Amy, for your point that no matter how big a spill is, there are still dramatic impacts. When these huge volumes of oil enter the environment, how does this affect our economy? We definitely do know how it impacts us economically. I'll just give you a few examples. There was a barge spill on the Mississippi River, and it closed the the major thoroughfare of the Mississippi River for several days. So you can imagine that it's costing millions and millions of dollars as a lot of our energy supply, our food supply, goes through the Mississippi corridor. 
There was also a spill on the Delaware River, Delaware Bay area several years ago, and it closed. they had to close down a nuclear power plant and could not produce power for uh, millions of people in Delaware and Pennsylvania and New Jersey. So you can see how that would also cause significant loss in economic revenue. So again, that was a, several millions of dollars lost. I'd also like to point out that anyone that's working on the water, so fishermen are always severely impacted by spills and their ability to go out and fish and even the perception of should they go out and fish is always a really big issue. So spills affect lots of components of the economy. Thanks, Amy. These are really startling numbers, really startling statistics that you're sharing with us today, both in the incredible volume of oil that can spill after a ship collision, but also these huge impacts to our economy. How do we clean up after oil spills occur? Well, we have a couple of tools that we can use to start cleaning up a spill after they occur. It really depends on what type of oil gets spilled. As I mentioned, all oil is different, and it's made up of lots of different other chemicals, so it behaves differently sometimes than what you might expect. The weather really impacts what we can do, so if it's a stormy day, there's not a lot we can do. It depends on how far away the, the spill is from bird and animal resources, how far away it is from people, and what we can actually do. So we tend to use a few key tools that we've been using for a long time. So the, kind of our first our first approach is trying to use things um, in a, a mechanical capacity. So we use booms, which are floating barriers that keep the oil contained. So you can put a boom around a vessel, or you can put a boom to block an inlet or, or a wetland area so the oil doesn't go into that area and making it harder to clean up. And they also have these specialized boats that skim the oil off of the surface, so taking advantage of oil floating on water. Skim it into a container, and then you take it back and offload it, uh, recycle it, and reuse it. Um, So that's kind of what we like to do if we can. But we have some other things we can do. We can burn oil in place, so right there on the water. If you can get it thick enough, we can actually burn it there can burn it in a marsh. We can also use things called dispersants. And what dispersants are, they're chemicals that actually break the the slick up into smaller droplets. It doesn't remove the oil from the environment. It just makes it smaller, gets it off the surface. So you might, might use that if you're trying to protect birds. So if you have a lot of birds in the area and you, you're going to trade off that resource and, and put the, the oil into the water column. So we, we don't use those very much, but they, they, we do have them available. What are some of the benefits or disadvantages for all of these different cleanup options? Yes, I, there are definitely pros and cons to all of those options. Once the oil's in the water, we, ha- we know we have a bad situation. So what we're trying to do is to minimize that situation and try to use things that get it out of the environment as fast as possible, but also in an environmentally sound way. So we sometimes don't remove all of the oil from our shoreline. We don't get it squeaky clean. And the reason for that is that if you blast a rocky shoreline, for example, with high-pressure hot water, and this was actually done in the Exxon Valdez, you changed the physical and chemical makeup of that substrate. So the organisms that were there can't recolonize because it's now different. So it actually impacts recovery. So if we get rid of the bulk oil, and then leave some residual oil, nature will take care of that. We do sometimes burn 
oiled marsh areas because you can't actually put people and equipment into a marsh because you do definitely more damage then because you put the oil down into the, the substrate, into the, in, into the mud and the sediments, and then it can't naturally recover. I imagine that this will vary for each spill, but approximately how long does it take to clean up after a spill? Are we talking days or weeks or even years? It really, really depends. It depends on how much is spilled, and, and it depends on, on what environment, and how far resources are to get there, and under what conditions, what weather conditions. So just to give you an example, there was a big spill a few months ago, 450,000 gallons, which is a relatively large spill today, in the Houston Ship Channel. And the cleanup was relatively easy because most of the oil, there, was, there were response equipment very close, so people could act on it really fast. But most of the oil was contained with booms and also hardened shorelines. The weather was relatively good and calm, so it made skimming really effective. But for an example, there was a spill in Alaska in the Aleutian Islands in December several years ago, and storms came in after the spill, and um, we weren't actually able to start cleanup until the spring. So in that situation, you know, a lot of the oil was not recovered, basically because we couldn't get people out there safely to, to clean it up until spring and then years after. How do we respond to spills in the Arctic when oil spills happen in ice? Well, in the Arctic, we would use the same methods that I described. It just will take us longer to get there in the Arctic, at least the way we're structured and where people live right now. In the Arctic, it's all predicated on being able to actually get to the spill so we, and, and get to the spill safely. So if we can't get there because it's too foggy or stormy or icy, then the spill is going to sit there until we can get there. Amy, can we determine how successful we are at cleaning up an area after an oil spill? Sure. We, we definitely try to do a mass balance. And what that means is that we have some ways of understanding how much got spilled. So we might know the tank size of the tank that got ruptured and how much oil entered the water from that tank or potentially entered the water from that tank. We know how much skimmers pick up. They're pretty good at calculating how much they're recovering. We also have models to estimate how much of the spill was lost to things like evaporation or dissolution, so chemicals coming off of the off of the oil and into the water, or photooxidation, so that's the sun breaking down chemicals in the oil. Uh, on the shoreline, we, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how much oil is on the shoreline. We estimate the bulk of oil on the shore, and then we go back after cleanup and estimate how much is still there. We also work with our injury assessment and restoration specialists to monitor how long it's going to take for the environment to really recover after the spill. Amy, how do we learn from past spill response and test out new cleanup techniques? We as NOAA really try to apply science to kind of the cleanup methods that we're recommending and we try to follow how those cleanup methods work and how long it takes things to recover so that we can apply that better in the next situation. So we spend a lot of our time when we're not on a spill working with our colleagues in industry and the Coast Guard and academia on talking about our lessons learned from those spills and what could we have done better, um, what, was, what were the things that worked really well, what are the things we need to try in the future. So we do have an R&D component where we, we know we, 
want to improve our models, for example, or we want to improve some of our assessment techniques. So we, we work with the academic community to help us move those forward. We also spend a lot of time holding training. So we help people understand kind of the best science for cleaning up spills. We also participate in drills. So in that situation where we spend a lot of time with the people we would be responding with, talking through some of the what would we like to try if a spill happens in this marsh? What types of things are we learning from other countries that we might apply in the U.S.? So those types of conversations happen a lot. Amy, can you talk more about an oil spill drill and why it's important? We just participated in a, a major exercise. It's called the Spill of National Significance. The reason it's called that is because the spill scenario was so large that one region couldn't clean it up. So we had to bring in equipment and people from all over the country to help deal with the scenario. And so we played it like that. So we had people come to a real command center. We set it up the way that you know we, we would use it in a real spill. So the, the responsible party was there the Coast Guard, all the state agencies, local communities, NOAA, we were all there working together. And what was so important about that is we were establishing a working relationship. Every, you know, everyone's, it's easier to go work with someone on a, a spill if you already know them. So that's our huge part of the drill, that just making sure that you understand the other person's point of view, you understand who they are, what they need. And then we work through the situation, like it, it does feel like you're on a real spill. It's great that time is invested to prepare before a spill, getting everybody together, because this will help things run more smoothly in the event that a spill actually happens. Amy, what's the role of the National Ocean Service in responding to oil spills? Well, the, the U.S. Coast Guard and the Environmental Protection Agency are actually the first federal responders for a spill. So the Office of Response and Restoration, which sits in the National Ocean Service, along with staff from other offices in NOAA, work to support these, the federal on-scene coordinators, so Coast Guard and EPA. So what we do in the Office of Response and Restoration for a spill is we first provide trajectory models, so forecasts of where the oil is going to go. Uh, we actually get on scene and conduct overflights to assess the extent of the spill and ground truth our models. So we have a lot of experience doing that. We spend a lot of time coordinating shoreline assessment surveys and spending a lot of time walking shorelines and calculating how much oil is there. And then we work with the Coast Guard and the responsible party to evaluate what the cleanup options are available. And again, we try to do this in the most practical and environmentally sound way. So we jointly develop a plan on how to actually do the cleanup. Can you explain the trajectory models that you just mentioned? Sure. So trajectory models are computer models they take into account the winds and the currents during the time of the spill to help forecast where that spill is going to move. So our oceanographers actually run this model in, in real time and get it to the, the command center so people can start understanding what resources are at risk and what protection strategies need to get put into place. So the models help the responders get ahead of the spill so they know where we think it might be going, they can put equipment so they can put some boom out and, and prevent it from actually hitting the shoreline in that area. The ocean has buoys and sensors in it, and we know where those are. So it's part of the integrated ocean observation system. And we actually can stream in that information real time. So we can stream in weather information. We can stream in tide information, current information. And all of that gets pulled in to run these trajectory models to make a more 
accurate and predictable. We actually have a, a computer program, it's actually a website called the Environmental Response Management Application that actually gives you the picture of these different pieces being streamed in and then you can put the oil trajectory model into this picture and then you can see your shorelines that have resources at risk. It's great that we have the data and expertise to forecast where oil will move and even be able to do something, as you mentioned, like placing a boom in an area to prevent it from spreading further and causing even more damage. Sounds like there are so many roles that your office and really so many other agencies play in response and cleanup from an oil spill. Is there anything our listeners can do to help support this? Sure. Yeah, Kate, there is. I think the main role for for listeners is that we do all have a, a part to play in maybe not so much in responding to the spills, but in helping to pre- prevent them. We can avoid dumping oil and oily waste in the sewer or the garbage, and we can also do some other things that we reduce our use of oil in the first place. So we may take more walks or use our bikes more or, or take the bus rather than using our car. So all of those things that we can do that reduce the use of oil actually leads to less oil being transported and therefore reduces the risk of a future spill. So we all have a responsibility for spills because we're all using oil uh, and we all, we, we all can make a difference and f- find solutions to the problem. Thanks, Amy. These are great examples of actions that we can really all take to help us reduce our use of oil and, in some cases, things we could do every day. Do you have any final closing words for our listeners today? Sure. Thanks for the opportunity. You know, I really like talking about my job, and although spills are not fun things to deal with, it, it is nice to be able to participate and be able to see recommendations go into action and actually help the environment. Here at NOAA, we spend a lot of time and effort being prepared to respond to all, all different types of oil spills in all, all sorts of different areas, including internationally. We really spend a lot of time understanding the science behind oil spills and training people on the science behind oil spills. And that's really what we're trying to bring to the response community so that when we are responding, we do it in the best way possible and we can clean up and restore our coastal communities. Thank you, Amy, for joining us on today's episode of Diving Deeper and talking more about the impacts of oil spills to our environment and the economy, how we respond to these, and even what we can all do to help. To learn more about oil spills and response efforts, please visit response.restoration.noaa.gov. That's all for today's show. Please join us on our next episode on tsunamis on April 21st.